Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Imprint Projects is looking for an associate creative director. This is a remote position. Duke University Press is looking for an art director for books and journals. This position is located in Durham, North Carolina. And Study.com is looking for a UX designer. This position is located in Mountain View, California. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our diverse international audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I want to take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. On the weekend of October 8th through the 10th, join the Harvard Graduate School of Design virtually for the Black in Design 2021 conference. This year's theme, Black Matter, is a celebration of black space and creativity from the magical to the mundane. Their speakers, performers, and panelists will bring nuance to the trope of black excellence and acknowledge the urgent political, spatial, and ecological crises facing black communities across the diaspora. You don't want to miss out on this weekend of learning, community, and connection. Visit them online at blackmatter.tv to learn more and to be a part of the event. Support for Revision Path also comes from Adobe Max. Adobe Max is the annual Global Creativity Conference and it's going online this year, October 26th through the 28th. This is sure to be a creative experience like no other. Plus, it's all free. Yep, 100% free. With over 25 hours of keynotes, luminary speakers, breakout sessions, workshops, musical performances, and even a few celebrity appearances, it's going to be one-stop shopping for your inspiration, goals, and creative tune-ups. Did I mention it's free? Explore over 300 sessions across 11 tracks, hear from amazing speakers, and learn new creative skills, all totally free and online this October. To register, head to max.adobe.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Janessa Robinson, an artist and entertainer based in Los Angeles and the founder and CEO of Artistry Land. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. 
I am Janessa Robinson, and I'm an artist and an entertainer. So how are things going for you right now? What's uh, what's on your mind? Oh, well, things are going great. I just moved to Los Angeles a month ago. Actually drove down here from San Francisco. Okay. And it was quite it was an interesting experience. That's the first sort of road trip that I've taken by myself before. And it was amazing because as I pulled into Los Angeles, it really hit me that I live here, that I'm moving here as a resident. And each other time that I came to LA, it was to visit. I stayed with a cousin once who lived in East LA. She's a screenwriter. And every time before that, it was sort of like I came through LAX airport on my way somewhere else. So I just wanted to stay. So I'm very happy that I'm here. And it's a very significant change for me because I spent three years living in San Francisco. And ever since I was a small child, I've always wanted to live here and, and not just live here, but be a leader in the community here to contribute something. I just saw that my life is here. So it's uh, an amazing experience. Nice. It sounds like uh, you've had a pretty transformative year then, especially with this move. I would say COVID's interesting, right? There's a lot of change for everyone. And for me, I went from, oh gosh, spending four hours in traffic, just commuting between San Francisco and Santa Clara to staying at home and me being like, okay, great. Well, now I can spend all the time I want on my art because we were essentially confined to our homes in the beginning. And I decided that I would start dancing every day. And I was recording myself and posting these videos on Instagram. I actually made a very intentional decision that I would turn my Instagram page into like a television channel. It's like a hmm. show. It's like an entertainment show. And I called it Variety Nessa. And I just was <laughs> dancing and rapping and singing and just shooting really interesting content in ways that would engage people since we were at home. And I was like, Hey, like check this out. So that kind of led me into doing music. Actually, I was producing, writing, singing, taking singing and song arrangement lessons, piano lessons, mixing and mastering my own music. I use an algorithm actually to master my music. And then hmm. Yeah, it was really interesting and um, sharing it on Bandcamp. And my first project I actually worked with a producing partner where he did the mixes and masters. And yeah, so I just spent the last year growing tremendously artistically, getting into NFTs and graphic design, just blossoming, just honestly blossoming. It's an amazing, amazing year. And now you're also kind of breaking a bit into Hollywood too, right? Yes. Yeah. I actually literally live in Hollywood. That's my community. Nice. <laughs> my home is located, which is really cool. Yeah. I am training at two Hollywood acting studios right now. One is Sherry Shaw Studio, which is physically located in Hollywood, although I haven't gone there yet because of COVID. And then the other is Leslie Kahn and Co. And both of these studios are very special to me. The instructors there, my classmates, the energy and the way that we all invest into each other. It's just very special to me. And then I'm very happy because for me, Hollywood physically and more metaphorically, the Hollywood community, which 
is spread out across the world, right? Like there's Hollywood, the location, and then there's Hollywood, the industry, which is just, it's a bunch of us who are very, very fond of entertaining and see a lot of value in it. And for me, something that over the last year I was really reminded of is my family history in Hollywood. And so I have a great, great grandmother named Eva Wheatley Jones, who danced with Josephine Baker. And she's one of the first quote unquote tan girls, meaning that she's like light skin, mm-hmm. like sort of brown, but not like dark skin brown. But, you know, at that time it was considered progress, I suppose. Yeah. I guess they all just call it colored back then, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess so. I guess that didn't even come. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's one of the first tan girls to dance with Josephine Baker. She's married to a a comedian and he was a part of like a comedy dance duo. His name is Butterbeans. Then I have a great uncle Arthur who played in a jazz band for Al Capone at the Copacabana in Chicago. And like, there's just a lot of people in my family that have really contributed to make the Hollywood entertainment industry what it is today. And so the inclinations that I have for all of these different forms of art. Like I just love art. I just love design. For me, it's about the process and the experience and whatever the tools are, I'll just use them to just make something magnificent. Like I don't really care what the tools are. I just, I want to do cool stuff. So it just, it occurred to me when my mom was kind of sharing all this information with me that was shared with me in my childhood, but like, this is now I'm, in my adulthood and now it resonates more to understand oh i see Mm -hmm. these are the giftings you know that my family that my ancestors recent and and much further back that they've bestowed on me and so i feel very very blessed and very grateful and appreciative to be in the position to know that to see that and to activate on what it is that they have deposited into me Wow, like it's it sounds like it's literally like it's literally in your blood to be an entertainer. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you come from that lineage. That's great. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is in my blood. That's what my mom says. She goes, "This is who you are. This is in your DNA. These are your genes." Is yeah. what she tells, <laughs> tells me. <laughs> so let's talk about one of the the things that you're currently doing. You're a, a content creator for a company called uh, Newsbreak. Talk to me about that. Yeah, it's interesting. So Newsbreak is a news publication that is available as a website, newsbreak.com, and as a downloadable mobile application, right? So people can go visit their app stores or Google Play Store and download Newsbreak. And it is interesting because it solves a problem. It solves the problem of gathering local news over... Gosh, I don't know the last, you could say 20, 30, 40 years. It depends on how far you want to go back. But we know that for some time, there's been a trend of investment into local news dwindling, right? And so Newsbreak prioritizes local news on the app and the website based on the geolocation of the user. It also pulls in national news. But the thing is that national news it's pretty repetitive, right? Yeah. Like news wires. <laughs> yeah. So it's like the same story over and over. And it just has like a slightly different, it depends. If it's a news wire, it's just going to be the exact same thing. But it, in most cases, it might be a slightly different tone based on the writer's style or 
you know, it just has a different masthead that it's under. But national news, now that we have, you know, Twitter and YouTube and all these things that help us communicate one story to billions of people instantaneously, it's just pretty repetitive. So local news is pretty cool because it's specific to what's happening in your community, in your neighborhood, right? Like what's going on? And I first started writing for Newsbreak just as I was leaving San Francisco. So I was writing stories there. And then as I moved here, I switched to writing local stories about Los Angeles. Honestly, I I like to report on like really interesting people, local businesses. I love reporting on food. I'm a pescatarian and I'm allergic to dairy. Mm -hmm. And so... I like to go out and see, well, like, where are the best seafood tacos? Because I love seafood tacos. And, you know, where can I get a really good salmon sandwich? Like, and just kind of write about that. And also, I like to eat those things. So I like to kind of be in that moment and, and just allow my palate to be dazzled and then take all of that energy in and write about that so that I can recommend to people where to go. I'll say that LA is... LA is LA. There's no place like Los Angeles. Reporting here has been very interesting. I just did a story on a luxury experience service company called Le Rambouillet. And I hope that people do not, the French people do not uh, criticize my my French accent. Um, <laughs> but, but I do speak a bit of French, so I, I'm sure it's you know, mostly accurate. But yeah, I got to report on this this luxury experience company and meet the owner who's a very private person. So, you know, I'll respect his, his privacy, but it's the fact that I'm talking about luxury experience company that, you know, will if I say, Hey, I want to fly to Monaco for a private shopping trip tomorrow, they'll put that together right now. They'll have a driver come pick mm-hmm. me up. They'll have a private jet waiting for me. There'll be food snacks that are the way, like all these things that it's just this amazing sort of company that in comparison to my time in San Francisco, it's not to say that that doesn't exist there. It's just maybe not as ingrained into the culture. <laughs> like in San Francisco, it's more like, where's the best vegan place to eat? Mm-hmm. Or what, what's a really good mountain to climb is what draws people there more so than LA, which is how fabulous can I live? I mean, that sounds very LA, something like yeah. that. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> LA was the last city that I visited before all this pandemic stuff. We did a we did a live show there back in oh. January. Well, no, it was January or February. It was February. Yeah, it was February of uh of twenty twenty. We did a live show down in uh Lamert Park. That was pretty good. And I didn't get to see a ton of LA. I just remember LA being so big. Like I stayed in Koreatown and the event that we did was in Lamert Park. And then I was in another part of town, not too far from Koreatown, because I was also there for a work conference. And, you know, people that were there were like, oh, you should go to the beach. And they're like, oh, but it's going to take about an hour to get there. I'm like, well, that doesn't really sound like something I want to do if it's going to take that long to get there. Like, and it's still in the city. I guess I didn't realize the enormity of Los Angeles until I actually got there and was like, this place is huge like really spread out (laughs) it is it is very large honestly so 
first of all, I hope that you come, that you return to LA and do another live show so that I can be on it. (laughs) What I was going to say is that before I moved here, the last time I visited was just before the pandemic. I don't know if it was around the same time that you were here, but it was just before the pandemic where Mm -hmm. the Los Angeles Clippers flew me out here for an interview. I was interviewing for a job there Mm -hmm. and they flew me down from San Francisco. And oh my gosh, when I got to LAX, I had about, I think like maybe 45 minutes or an hour between landing and the time of my interview. And I was like, oh, that's plenty of time to get down to LAX. Nope. And then I was like, oh my God, am I going to make it? Like, what is going on? Yeah. And it was just so stressful. And I almost missed my flight on the way back because I was in those interviews like all day. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, I don't think they know what time I flight or like no one's paying attention. So apparently I have to tell them, hey, I have to go Yeah, (laughs) catch this flight. And I almost missed it when I was in the process of traveling back to San Francisco. I was like, wow, yeah, it's been a long time since I've lived in a city that's really large. I'm from Chicago. I, I lived in New York for a bit. Okay. Then I started to wonder, I was like a city with 8 million people, LA, like, do I want to do that? Like, I don't know. But then I do. <laughs> I was like, I don't care. I'll deal with it. So, right, right. So now it's like, sure, it'll take an hour to get to Santa Monica. That's fine. I'll just like, you know, listen to some good music and chill yeah. in the car. It's no big deal. I was surprised by how much traffic there was. there. I mean, I, I live in Atlanta, which has, which is notorious for traffic, but Los Angeles has Atlanta beat it. I mean, hands down, like the traffic that I would see or that I actually was stuck in at, on the one on one was oh, like no. hellish. It was ridiculous. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. It's tough. I'll say I don't have my only comparison points for being in traffic or me being a passenger, because this is the first time in my life that I've ever driven regularly is the first car that I've ever owned my mm-hmm. first vehicle. So like, I don't know. I've just, um, when I was growing up, everyone drove me around for the most part. And even when I got a license, that was still the case. And then when I graduated high school, I went to undergrad. I started at St. John's university in New York where like very few people drove regularly, like um, around there. Mm-hmm. And then and then by the time I graduated, I transferred and graduated from Tulane University in New Orleans. So by the time I did that, Uber was a thing. It was like not yet an app. Mm-hmm. It was text-based. But you could just text this number and like a private like black car would pull up. And I thought it was sketchy at first. I was like, I don't know, <laughs> my friend, kidnap me. Like, who's in the car? Like, <laughs> but yeah. So then like I just Ubered around for like almost like eight years and now I own a car and I'm like, yeah. Oh, traffic. This is what it's like to drive. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's interesting. I miss those early days of Uber when they just had uh, the black cars. But for what yeah. I remember, I mean, I, I mean, I, I would take them in different cities, but the one sort of thing that I, I remember is how much the drivers hated it because for them like they're used to i guess you know if you're a black car driver like a Lincoln Town car or something like that there's a certain i think clientele that you're used to in terms of mm-hmm. decorum and all that sort of stuff now they're like picking up drunk kids at the bar and driving yeah. them three blocks and then having to clean up vomit from the back seat and Ugh. i remember talking to uh, i did it for an article this was back in the Atlanta Journal Constitution jesus maybe 10 years ago i think 
God, wow, rideshare services have been around that long. But I remember talking to, to, to some drivers and them being like, yeah, I hate it. Like, I don't know what this Uber thing is, but like, it's some extra money. But I don't like the fact that we have to like pick up these folks and they, they give us attitude and it's just a different thing. I mean, now, of course, ride sharing is a pretty, I think, common thing because now folks can even use their own cars. But like, yeah, I remember in the beginning though, just taking those black cars and feel it just felt so official. Like, Oh, this is nice. This is, this is, I felt wealthy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I would agree. I'm sure they're used to a very specific persona for clientele. I remember when I was in DC, I was out with some friends and we ordered, this is when Uber was an app, but I think we had, we got like Uber black because it was so many of us and we're like, let's get a SUV or whatever. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) this friend who is giving the Uber driver directions, which is already like, I don't know why you're doing this. He has a map. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) And and he tells the driver, he was like, yeah, bang a right, right here. And the drivers drove straight through the intersection. Whoa. Well, like, he doesn't know, like, what bang a right means. He was like, I don't know what that is. Like, he was like, bang a right? Like, what is this? And just, like, kept going straight. I think also he maybe didn't like that this guy was leaning over the seat giving him directions. But, mm, yeah. Yeah, it was, it, there was some clear maybe mismatch of energy there so those sort of funny i want to talk to you about this term content creator because it's certainly one that i think has popped up i don't know maybe like with over over the past two years or so we've been seeing this sort of generalization of people that maybe before have done specialized stuff like they've been writers or illustrators or you know whatever and now it's just kind of this generic term content creator. And when I hear it, I feel like it's mostly associated with video, but I'm I'm curious, like when you hear that phrase content creator, like what does that mean to you? Honestly, I don't know what, like, (laughs) so I don't know. It could mean a lot of things. I have Asperger's. So one of the characteristics of that is like a person might see a word or a phrase And their mind starts to run through the multiple meanings or ways that it could be used, the etymology, at least for me, because I'm a linguist. So like, honestly, for me, it's like a placeholder, just some words, just some letters, some syllables that go there to describe the way that someone moves through the world. And it's used in a lot of ways. I agree. Like sometimes it's used for writers. Sometimes it's used for people who run podcasts. Sometimes it's for Mm -hmm. video people. I think in the context of Newsbreak, it's, I don't know. I think it's because like they use content creator because in a lot of cases, they're looking for someone who's more than a writer. I mean, being a writer is great. It's an excellent skill, right? But in the digital space, when you're, developing articles, unless you have a full editorial staff where you have photographers and art directors and video producers that are their own individual team, right? Mm -hmm. Then the writer, the journalist becomes the person who wears all those hats. So I'm that person. I do interview people. I, I, I develop sources and relationships. I interview them. I shoot photography. I edit photography. I shoot video. I edit video. And, you know, I polish it all up and put it out there. So for me, I guess that's what I associate it with now is if I'm a content creator, I'm someone who I create any kind of content. It's it's like the same thing where I'm like, yeah, I can make my own music from end to end. Whatever the content is, 
it's something I can create. <laughs> it's sort of like the way that I see it, but I don't know. I think it can be one, is that now going to be the expectation, right? Like our specialties no longer going to be as prized, right? Like being a really excellent writer, I think for some people that might be maybe all they want, or maybe they only want to do photography. Like, I don't know. I mean, I feel good about it because I can do all those things. I like doing all those things. But what about someone who doesn't want to do all those things? Right. What if they have a very strong interest in one area? I hope there's still space for those people. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's kind of a new way of looking at jack of all trades. That's kind of how I guess it used to be called, where you did a lot of different things. You just brought a lot of different skills to the table. And I had a friend that, that actually he really explained it to me in a way that made sense. It's like, he says, content these days is sort of like water. And whatever the medium is or the platform is the container that mm-hmm. that content can fill. So, for example, let's say, oh, so there's this guy. He's a chef. His name is Chef John Kung. And he was mostly doing stuff on TikTok, I think. But like it, the concept is him cooking, which can be extrapolated to any number of different, you know, platforms because he's using video. So in that mm-hmm. video format, yes, it could go on TikTok, but it could also go on Instagram. It could also go on YouTube and you can see how these different platforms would have different audiences, different levels of engagement, et cetera. But like someone could also take that and take the video out and now you just have the audio and that could be a podcast mm-hmm. or someone could transcribe that audio and now that's an article. Or someone can take that article and make images of it, and now it's an infographic. And so content ends up being this, like, it's the idea, and then whatever that sort of medium or platform is is sort of how it can trickle down and filter down. But yeah, that's if you want to do all of that stuff. Like, for example, I consider myself a podcaster, but I have had people call me a content creator because I can do video, da-da-da-da-da. I mostly just do podcasting because that's what formed this particular idea is in but yeah revision path could be video and articles and all this stuff i choose for it not to be but it could Mm -hmm. be so like i I hear that term content creator and it's like i always bristle at it a little bit because i'm like be specific but then maybe that's just me being older thinking like it has to be in one of these sort of finite categories or whatever that's interesting i think i like it because it is flexible and broad and for me, I mean, today I might want to write articles. Tomorrow I might want to shoot a film. And so like, I don't, I don't like figuring out the way to sort of label myself in regards to the the way that I contribute artistically. I don't know. I, I end up with a lot of words. Like if you go to my website, right, on JanessaRobinson.com or artistryland.space, there's an area in both places to read my bio. And it says, Janessa Robinson is a published journalist, a writer, an actor, a photographer, a this, a that. Like, there's so many, like, what would I call this? You know, it's like, I don't know, <laughs> like, what to, mm-hmm. so I like when there's something that's flexible or broad enough. The word artist, I love it because you could be a performance artist, you could be a singer, you could be a poet, you could be, you know, it's flexible enough in a way where someone who creates art at this point is not just a singer or not just a poet. Like if you're an artist, it means that you have a particular artistic vision, artistic gaze and artistic process. 
and you apply that to whatever medium. Like it doesn't, the medium at that point isn't as relevant as it is to maybe like whatever the message is that you want to communicate. The question that becomes, is this the best medium or is this the proper medium or the best way to reach people, right? Like what's the goal? So with content creator, I like it because yeah, otherwise it's like, well, am I a writer, a video producer, or this? And it's like, it becomes this long list. In Hollywood, when someone is multi-talented that way, we used to call it a triple threat. Like yeah. Jamie Foxx, he'll sing, he'll act, he'll produce, like comedy, whatever. You call this person a triple threat. Today, we call it a multi-hyphenate mm. because triple isn't, <laughs> it is not true. Like at that point, it's less about the specific activities, like what it is that someone's doing and more about who they are and what they bring to whatever they touch. So that's how I identify. It's like, if you give me a camera, I'm going to start shooting things, right? If you give me a microphone, I'm going to start singing. I don't, it's more this artistic energy. So with content creation, I feel very similar, whereas I might, content creation might be NFTs and graphic design today. It might be videos and editing and cutting together audio the next day. And I like that when I formed my company, Artistry Land, you know, to fill out all this like business paperwork and, and articulate, well, what are the products and the services? And I put one of the things that I put is digital and physical content, right? Mm -hmm. And then I put some examples, right? And I said, including, but not limited to, because it's artistry land. It's a land of art. <laughs> like, I was like It's just going to be whatever I need it to be. <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm figuring that out every day. Like, and I love that exploration. I think that's amazing. I get to learn a lot and connect with people in ways that are relevant and timely to the present. Let's talk about artistry land. This is a, a company that you started a, a few years ago. Tell me more about it. Like, what are some of the projects and things that you've done through artistry land? Yeah. So I, I was already operating as an entrepreneur since maybe 2014. I began freelance writing and I was gaining all of these opportunities to be published in really great sources and publications like Huffington Post and Salon and Ebony and NAACP's The Crisis Magazine and The Guardian. And, and I just kind of thought that was like a cool thing to do on the side. And then maybe two years ago, I think it was occurring to me that I could formalize this business. I could formalize this business into something that grows beyond just freelance writing. And my father is an entrepreneur. He's been an entrepreneur for a long, long time. He actually is a former professional basketball player. He was drafted to the Utah Jazz, and then he went to play in Europe for about eight years. Okay. And, yeah. <laughs> And then when he came back, he did some kind of like sales stuff and this while he, while he still had entrepreneurial things going on. And then I just kind of grew up with watching him build businesses. And so I thought to myself, well, you know what I really like about my dad's entrepreneurship, that it allows him to live, to be fully human, to not be tied to someone else's schedule, to kind of make his own decisions about where he needs to be and when, particularly as it relates to him living his purpose. And so with artistry land, I, I, you know, I kind of did these like brainstorm exercises and I was like, well, what is my business? Like, what does it do? Who does mm -hmm. it serve? 
before I came to a name, by the time I kind of went through my research, I was like, okay, well, who's Janessa, right? Janessa does love to write, but Janessa is so much more than that. And here I was dancing on Instagram. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I, at this point I had also had a short film. It's a 30 second film featured in Time Magazine and Ava DuVernay's Optimist Issue, 2019 mm. Optimist Issue video project. And I was like, yeah, I do love film, right? I studied cinema and I've, I have grew up in theater and I did do some acting classes in college. And, and I was like, here I am. I want to do music. And I was like, well, what is this company? So like, so I just kind of formalized it into artistry land as I developed my own artistry. And I operate a blog at artistryland.space where I do produce content. It's mostly mostly written. Something I started doing this year, I think in the summer, was just highlighting artists because Artistry Land is really focused on the intersection of art and wellness. I see these things as so intrinsically tied together. I don't know a single artist whose mental health or physical or otherwise holistic health isn't impacted by their art or their ability to produce their art or the reception of it or like every artist I know has some sort of health related experience to practicing their art. And for many of us, I'll speak for myself, art is healing. So I love the idea of artists who are doing well and living well, and us exploring what that means, what it means to do well for yourself and to do good in the world and to live well. And what are the practices that you do that cultivate that experience? So I've begun interviewing artists who sort of do good in the world and they live well. And I ask them questions about what artistic projects are most meaningful to them, what kind of art they practice. So I, I interviewed a friend of mine who's an opera singer. She lives in Japan. She's a black woman. She's an opera singer. It's the year 2021 and she lives in Japan. She's a rarity like mm -hmm. by definition, right? Like, so, and she talks about her time studying Buddhism, particularly while living in Japan and for just discussing how important it is for her to be a black woman opera singer in this very old traditional art form. And I get to learn a lot. I think it's, it's really important that artists continue to learn from each other. There's there's a lot of folks who talk about the need for artists to support each other, which I agree 100%. I just find that it is maybe more motivating if it's clear in terms of what we're learning from each other. If I'm learning something, I'm going to show up. If you just go, hey, man, you should support me. I'm going to be like, oh, like, I don't, I would like to, but like, this is kind of like you're asking a, me to hug a porcupine right now. It's like, you're not right. being super <laughs> endearing about this. So if you go, hey, like, this is what we're learning together, then I'm very motivated to show up. And so that's my approach with Artistry Land is to say, well, you know, I want to learn from you. And I hope that people, by reading your interview and being introduced to your art by following you on Instagram or Twitter or checking out your website, that they learn from you as well. And I think that's what's really important. So something else that I've done with Artistry Land is... I'm developing relationships with clients. I do design work under Artistry Land. So graphic design, brand strategy, brand design work. So I have some like 
business to business clients. One of them is called Where Is My Meeting, which is a digital video production company. And I think most recently they ran a press conference for Muriel Bowser in DC about COVID and vaccinations. But they also did, I partnered with them on this, it's like a virtual talent show in February, which feels like a really long time ago. I was like, is that last year? It was definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a, a cell, it's called Celebrate Black Voices Talent Show. And where's my meeting? Did the video production for it. And we gathered all of these Black artists to spotlight. And so there's poetry and there's rap. And I, I shot and edited my own music video and aired it in that talent show, which is really cool. And then I also, I've just been searching for organizations to partner with and invest in. So one of them is, well, you probably know this. <laughs> it's the Queer BIPOC Design. Yeah, uh, Stephen Wakabayashi. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I, I saw what they're doing in terms of promoting design thinking, empowering queer BIPOC people with resources to be designers professionally. And I said, oh, I would love to contribute. So I decided, I decided to donate after a call that I had with Steve to just learn more about, you know, who they're serving, how they're serving people, what the offerings are. And then another organization that I decided to donate to is one that I used to, it's a theater that I used to train at when I was in Chicago. It's called the Chicago Beverly Arts Center. Mm -hmm. And when I was in high school at Morgan Park High School, I participated in an off-campus drama program at this theater. Because like every Thursday, I was done with classes, maybe like, I think halfway through the day. And then I would go to the theater. And we'd be in class all afternoon to the evening. It was me and a small group of students. And the staff at the Beverly Arts Center trained us on theater. They took us into the theater, onto the stage, which is not the first time I'd been on stage because I did do stage plays in elementary school. But they go, you know, this is downstage. This is upstage. This is what happens behind the curtains. And, like, mm -hmm. and then we went and we started to read plays. And then they had us write our own play, produce it. So we had to do costume design. Then we had to act in it. <laughs> so like, wow. This, this was the most amazing experience ever. So I called the Beverly Arts Center a few weeks ago and I said, hey, like, do you still have this partnership with Morgan Park High School? And the artistic director at the time said, yeah, you know, I actually need to write a grant for scholarships. I said, okay. So I donated some money for that purpose so that the students there would have a scholarship to help cover their classes at the Beverly Arts Center. Cause it now dawns on me that someone did that for me at some point. Right. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I just was there having fun, but I didn't know that someone paid for it. And now something I'm exploring with the Beverly Arts Center is as someone who has Asperger's and has learned in my adult life in the last maybe year and a half, two years about it. When I look back, I see how much growing up in theater camp and drama class really helped me understand social settings, social norms and expectations and experiences. Because when you're reading a play, whether it's a table reading or you're performing, you could be off book, whatever. You have this concept of setting and characters and relationship 
and subtext under the dialogue and action. And it just kind of broke down things to me that were somewhat confusing. And so I thought, hey, like, maybe I can talk to the Beverly Arts Center and see if they're interested in doing something that focuses on empowering people on the autism spectrum through this particular medium, through theater and acting. And so it's something we're having a conversation about. It's something we're exploring. And I I hope that we're able to come up with something because I just know the impact of that on my life. Like people have all these conceptions about if, if they're aware of autism or Asperger's to begin with, then they might have conceptions about the way that it presents itself or what the person looks like. And generally speaking, people seem to think that I don't quote unquote look like someone with Asperger's, which is like, whatever. What does that, yeah. What does that mean? I don't know. Like, <laughs> like, I cringe kind of, but then I'm like, you know, I just listen. I'm like, thanks for sharing that. Like you're, thanks for being, you know, open and honest. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I agree. There's not a look. And then the second thing they'll say is, well, also I can't tell you don't seem awkward or whatever. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting because one, I study communication. I work in that field. So I was like, this is a very intentional set of choices I've made here. And two, (laughs) I've spent my life in acting and theater and speech class and all these things that I guess at this point, yeah, people, they have no idea, right? Like, but when I was a child, I remember being sent home a lot because like, I would go play with friends and then something would happen. I can't, I don't really know what it is, but they would kind of send me home and be like, yeah, I don't know. Like she's not, you know, sometimes she's like not getting along with the children. She won't apologize. And I'm like, what what would I be apologizing for? Like, I just didn't understand. I was like, I don't, they're like, are you sorry? I'm like, no. And they're like, you're supposed to say you're sorry. I was like, why would I say something I don't mean? Like, what are you? And it's not that like, I don't have a problem with remorse or regret. I, I'm a human, right? It's just that like, whatever the social norm or expectation that I broke, I didn't understand the concept of it. I was like, mm-hmm. what, what is it that you're expecting? Because you haven't stated it directly to me. And if you haven't expressed it verbally to me or in writing, that's preferable. If you put it in writing, then I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I was like, I just don't. So, so simple things like, and a friend was mentioning to me the other day, like he knew a child on the spectrum and he sat down next to a child on the sofa and started talking to him. And the kid was just locked, gazed on the television and wouldn't look my friend in the eye. And I was like, yeah, like even that, I don't get that. Like if you came over to sit down next to me and I'm watching television, you're now disrupting me. Like, I was like if you, why do you think that I'm going to turn and start looking at you? Do I look yeah. visible? Like I don't understand. <laughs> so yeah. So anyway, I like artistry land because it gets to explore these different aspects of art and the way that it shows up in people's lives. It's typically connected to someone's someone's early childhood experience or some transformative life change that they've made in their adulthood. The people that I talk to feel drawn to it. And so I, I see artistry land as a, a publication by an artist for artists and also this house, this art house of content that I am developing as I grow my business. And at some point I want to hire people. I'm just trying to figure out like how to go about that. And the whole thing about like being a business owner with employees, that seems kind of intimidating, but it's really important because I want to employ artists. So I'm figuring it out along the way. Well, I think LA certainly is going to be a great city for that. I mean, to me, I always see it as like this destination 
location for people that are trying to strike out on their own. I mean, I think that's just kind of part of the, uh, I almost want to say part of the American story of like, you know, moving out West, manifest destiny, going to parts unknown, that sort of thing. But LA in particular, when it comes to creativity, it's like one of the few cities people really look to, to like make a name for themselves. Like they'll do that in LA or they'll do it in New York. It's like one of those two places. I agree. A hundred percent agree. So funny you say that because what led me out here at this point in my life was a series of very mystical metaphysical experiences mm-hmm. <laughs> that drew me to say I was working in policy in Washington, D.C. at the time, which is if you work in D.C., you pretty much work in policy. What else are you going to do there? And yeah, I enjoyed the work in that it's so impactful. I worked with an environmentalist organization, human rights organization. I met community leaders and organizers from Guatemala, from Brazil. People were literally fighting for their land rights, for for their um, homes, for their access to food and water. And yet, as an artist, I was not being fed. And so... I don't know like what the bounds are of this podcast, but I'll just mention that I did shrooms <laughs> in life. Okay. Okay. You know, it's a it was a very, very interesting experience that led me to being reconnected with these aspects of myself that weren't being fed, right? So art and being an artist is is one of those things. And I had all of these these moments in meditation where I saw myself living in Los Angeles as an artist and doing so in a way that's incredibly meaningful because I had built up all of this awareness about politics and the intersection of race, gender, class. And these are all things that I was writing about. And yet we were kind of looking at Hollywood at that time. Like, why is it not getting what's going on in the world? Like, why does Hollywood not understand that some of these pictures are not going to do well or that some of these narratives are no longer acceptable. And basically it just came to me that I'm going to be moving here and I'll be someone to contribute something of of significance in, in the area of progress. And it all happened very quickly. I found myself quitting my job. I was in a relationship, breaking up with my boyfriend, breaking my lease. And just like all in two weeks, everything changed. And I actually like traveled around the country for a bit at that time. It just, I visited LA where I stayed with my cousin in East LA and I spent time walking around. I visited Vegas and Arizona and I went to concerts and then I spent all my money and uh, <laughs> I had to go back to Chicago. <laughs> I had to go back to Chicago and, you know, I actually went to take care of my grandfather because he was in his late age at the time. And then I worked at my father's basketball program called in the paint basketball and and i had to go back to chicago not just because i ran out of money but because i had seventy thousand dollars in student loan debt at the time mm. so, I was like, so i needed a lot of money and that's where where i kind of rebuilt myself and i spent about eight hours in meditation per day just getting to understand what most fulfills me and allowing my subconscious to open itself up to my super conscious mind so that it became very clear to me about what to do and how to do it. So I went through the process of job seeking. I did some like temp work for a little bit. 
and I was interviewing. And then I landed a job at Greater Good Studio in Logan Square on the north side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it was a really amazing experience because when I got there, I was introduced to design thinking. And I had been curious about it because I'd heard about it. But when I got there and I learned about design thinking, I learned that there are some elements of it that I had already been using, which helped me find that job, like this idea of developing product features. So sometimes designers will write whatever product is or what it's meant to do at the top of a page, or they'll use a board and use post-its or whatever. And then they'll write down its features, right? So like, what does the product do? How does it feel like physically? What color is it? If it makes sounds, what are the sounds it makes? What do those sounds indicate? Where's the product used? Like, we just, you have to think about like designing this. And it could be a physical product or it could be software. You know, it could be an artistic project. But I was like stunned because I had already written down on a sheet of paper, excuse me, I had already written down on a sheet of paper Janessa's ideal work environment. And Janessa's ideal job. And then I wrote down all these characteristics, which as a writer is the word that I've used. Like, these are the characteristics that make up this experience. As a designer, you go, these are the features. And I wrote down that it has to have sunlight and people who are really kind. And I wanted something that had an industrial feel and it was open air. And I needed it to be near places I could eat at. And so when I showed up for my interview at Greater Good Studio, I was like, this open air office with exposed brick and these huge windows and across the street is this vegan place. And (laughs) I was like, Oh my God, this is the place. (laughs) Like, this is so cool. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I got to work with people that are very artistically and creatively inclined as well as people that are very research driven. And I worked on a project where our client was the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And the name of the project is called Raising Places. Okay. It's basically a community design project where we went to communities across the United States. It was six communities from the West Coast to the East Coast. And we taught them the process of design. So we had workshops and design sprints and research sprints we just helped them map their community challenges. So some of the challenges that came up were street lighting and safety, safety for bikers, right? On, on the streets, like people who are, are bicycling across the road and they want to feel that there's enough space for them. Food security. I spent time at a, on a Native American reservation. It's Crow Nation reservation in Montana. And they have one grocery store on the reservation and it didn't carry very many fresh fruits or vegetables. And there are so many systemic reasons about what's created those conditions, right? I mean, we could look at policy, we could look at legislation, we could look at the land grabs from Native Americans, colonization overall. These were very, very heavy, serious conversations. And yet there was a lot of fun because the people are, they're just families. (laughs) They're just people, right? So it's, we kind of, we got to get to know people and, and share a bit about ourselves and do as best as we can to empower them through that process. And so it was, it was a very good experience. It was a lot of traveling is what I'll say. I did 18 trips in six months across the country. And some of those flights were from Jersey 
to LAX or mm-hmm. to SFO. And it was like, when I got on the plane, I was eating dinner. When I got off the plane, I was like, should I eat breakfast? Because I don't know. <laughs> like, I don't know if my food is digested. It was very confusing. Like, it was just disorienting. <laughs> but it was an amazing experience. And I hope that there is some lasting impact overall that really improves the conditions that people experience. Mm. There's a, a post that you had up on Artistry Land where you wrote about using design thinking to to help manifest. I'm curious, how has that practice kind of helped you as a creative? Because I'm pretty sure our listeners might be able mm-hmm. to kind of learn about how they can do that themselves. Yeah, it's interesting. So, okay. So some of that gets into this, the example I gave with Greater Good Studio, where I was like, as a writer, writing down characteristics and I was like, oh, I, Janessa really loves politics and photography and writing. And she loves traveling. And I was just writing down all of these lists of things about myself. And I was doing that as a manifestation tool, right? So I meditate in a space that's very open and honest and vulnerable. And that might be physically, it could be anywhere. I just mostly sat on the bed or lied on my bed or sat on a yoga mat but when I, when I closed my eyes and began to breathe very intently, I did so with the intention of being vulnerable and being honest and being true to myself. Because previously living in Washington, D.C., I ended up there because I basically decided not to go to law school. I'd like sp- spend all this time applying to law school, getting in, got into Loyola in Chicago, decided not to go, moved to DC and wasn't really happy with my life there. And it's because I wasn't being honest with myself. I didn't really want to go to law school either. I wasn't being honest with myself. So I had to sit down and go, what do I want? And find this intersection of what do I want with what is very meaningful to contribute to the world? Because the thing about manifestation is, sure, people can manifest objects or experiences However, I believe that the point, at least for me, is to do so in a way that is contributing to my purpose, right? So I've come here with a life assignment. And so I would just visualize what is most meaningful to me. I'd I'd allow these visions to pour into me. And sometimes they're very sharp and clear. And sometimes it was like a little bit of light in a, a room full of darkness, And in any case, I would come out of meditation and then go and write those things down on a sheet of paper. And then as I was job searching or apartment hunting or meeting strangers, I just found that the things that I had written down on a sheet of paper with a pen, it's not like no one can see this, just me, just me in the universe. Those things manifested before me. It just happened, right? And so there's a particular frequency that I was operating on that is beyond myself though. And I think that's really important to say that the intention for me was to move beyond my own ego. Because if it was just ego, it would have been like, yeah, I probably would have gone to law school because lawyers make a lot of money. Like that would like, <laughs> pay off those student loans. Yeah. Yeah. Done. But that would have made me happy. And I think the issue with that is that it not making me happy means that my contribution to the world wouldn't have been from a place of love. Mm. So even as an attorney, I may have thought that I would have been helping people, but how much would I have been helping people if I wasn't operating from a place of love and compassion because I wasn't being loving and compassionate to myself? So finding some balance between 
this makes Janessa happy. And this is what Janessa contributes that also makes people happy and is compassionate. So it decreases their suffering. There has to be balance there. And so, yeah, at the design studio, I, I became more trained in design and I've since worked in Silicon Valley and completed a product design boot camp. in addition to that. And so now I use design thinking and, and manifestation. I don't know. They're kind of the same thing to me at this point. Like what I do is I'll write at the, the top of a page, the year, like 2021, mm-hmm. and then I'll sketch things that come to me. So at one point I sketched a studio, you know, in the studio, there's like a microphone and a camera and a whole desk set up. And then maybe nine months later, I realized that I was living in the place that I sketched on that book. And I didn't even realize I was like, I didn't go out and say, oh, let me match this sketch. It was just, it kind of happened. And so, yeah, so I think that there's, when it comes to design thinking, design thinking is about understanding a problem. And you apply these phases of design thinking to the process. So there's a point where you're only focused on the problem. And for me, that was, well, I just blew my life up. So I was like, I really need to understand what's going on here. So I spent months just focusing on that. It doesn't have to be months, but you do have to focus on the problem so that you can be clear about what solutions you can develop. So my solutions were, it's pretty simple. Like what area of my life do I want to focus on? personal life, right? family relationships, intimate relationships, career, home. And so I can find solutions in these three areas. And those solutions would be, okay, well, what is that balance between Janessa's happiness and increasing happiness in the world? Going to work at a design studio is one of those things because I knew I'd learn a lot of things that I could use in other aspects. Moving to Los Angeles, moving to California in general, where it's very sunny and there's a lot of nature and I'm surrounded by people who also value those things. And then also it is important to me to have economic security and to develop wealth because in order to do the things that I see myself doing, right, where I, I see myself contributing, I have to have some resources. So for me to say, hey, I want to donate to the Beverly Arts Center because that place helped make me who I am. I have to have money to do that. (laughs) Okay. Just, I can donate my time too, right? That's a thing. But I was specifically wanted to donate money because that's what got me the time to be there in the first place when I was in high school is someone somewhere got a grant or developed a relationship with a funder. And that pulled me to the Beverly Arts Center. So it's, so for me, it, it, it is really important to, look at the intention behind whatever is is desired to manifest and to be very clear and honorable in that intention. And once there's clarity about that intention, I use design thinking as a way to align my physical reality with my metaphysical reality. I think sometimes with manifestation, I've learned that someone might be seeking to manifest something and they've created, say, a vision board, maybe they stop there. So they've gone to the metaphysical reality by using intention and finding things that represent these experiences or objects they desire. And in the physical world, they've gathered magazines or cut them out, but then they kind of stopped. Where I think it's important to look at is to say, well, how do you continue to align your present physical reality 
with the metaphysical and metaphysically all things exist simultaneously, right? But the way that we experience them in a physical reality is a bit different. We have this perception of time or limitation and metaphysically there are no limitations. Everything is infinite. So yeah, sure. In infinity somewhere, there might be a version of you that has whatever you put on this vision board in this reality what are you going to do? What steps are you going to take to actualize that? Now, design thinking can say, let's research it. If you want to manifest a trip to Paris, well, let's research that, right? Like, what does it take to get to Paris? I would add, and this is my secret sauce in manifestation and design thinking is, who do I need to be? Who is that version of me that's Mm. living in Paris? What am I doing there? Who am I meant to meet? Whose life am I meant to contribute to? What lessons do I bring back with me, right? Those are the things that make it very clear about what I'm meant to do. If I know that I'm living in Paris one day and I'm there as a filmmaker and I'm telling the stories of of people who otherwise might go unheard, then I know, okay, I need to be someone who is somewhere contributing to a community that needs me. Otherwise, I don't become that person. So design thinking can say, okay, like, Let's research it and let's ask questions about, well, it can be very basic. Like, what do you need to get to Paris passport, all these things, but what types of people visit Paris, <laughs> right? Like what are the choices those people make? What are the problems they're looking to solve or the solutions they bring if they're business people, right? Mm-hmm. Like what kind of person might be an expat there? How do I become that type of person? What version of myself is that? Like, it, and it becomes very clear once you're doing persona based work, what the decisions are that someone's making. But it's important to be clear about the desired outcomes. So is it just to live in Paris? Well, yes, I would love to live in Paris. Is it to to cultivate a sense of culture there so that I can translate? Because I do speak French and I want, personally, I'd like to increase my proficiency so that I could be a translator in a way that's very diplomatic. And I can particularly communicate amongst French-speaking countries in English-speaking countries across the world, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's really important to think big and to be specific about what can I do from where I am right now. So if I want to be a translator, a, a diplomat who, who translates and, and deals with issues and builds alliances between French-speaking and English-speaking countries, well, where can I learn more about French-speaking countries, I can research that from my computer. Nothing's stopping me from doing that. Like that's that's simple, right? So yeah. So it's it's something that I use in a way that at this point is very intertwined, and I think I need to find like my own name for this approach because design thinking is a very specific thing, and manifestation can show up in a lot of different ways. And there are folks who do have approaches in particular rituals and ceremonies that they use. And a vision board is a great example. It's just that it has a, a title and I don't have like a title for my process yet. So I'll add that to, to my list of things to do. Okay. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? I mean, I know you're kind of, it seems like throughout your creative career, you've kind of been on this never ending odyssey in a way. And now you're here in Los Angeles. You're about to start off with this, this new really like this new chapter of your life? Like, where do you see yourself in the next five years? What do you want to accomplish? I see myself as continuing to lead innovation. And I don't, I don't just mean from a technical 
standpoint or innovation in, in business. Innovation in business, of course, innovation in the way that we experience our human lives. So that would be leading in Hollywood in the area of, you know, diversity, inclusion, equity. I'm looking at things that would create system change and practices change, particularly when it comes to people on the autism spectrum, but also people generally that identify to have disabilities, people of color, queer people and women. Because when I was in Silicon Valley, I got to lead, I got to advocate for and develop the existence of employee resource groups mm-hmm. at a publicly traded company. And then I, I became the co-chair of a specific employee resource group or employee belonging group is what they call it there. And so I want to apply those learnings to Hollywood and develop ways of working with people to grow our consciousness, awareness, and to shift our habits and behaviors to reflect our values. And then simultaneously, I see myself continuing to build relationships more broadly across business to make it more collaborative and to make it more reflective of a community-oriented mindset. And that may be the millennial in me, where for me, what's really important is to collaborate with people and yes, to be inclusive. And I think that you know, competition is somewhat innate to us as humans, as human beings. There is um, some sense of you know, an animalistic side where there is competition. I don't think that we need to over-rotate on that, particularly given the, the circumstances of climate change mm-hmm. or a public health pandemic. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't think that we need to over-rotate on being competitive. I think it's a time where it actually behooves us to be more collaborative. And so that's something I see myself approaching through content development, through my choices in who I partner with business-wise, through working with different organizations to see how do we embed those values into the way that we practice our work, whatever that is. So I'm interested in, in seeing Hollywood be more dynamic in the stories that we tell and how we tell them and what we do with those results. And when I say results, I mean monetary results in this sense. I would like to see that Hollywood is contributing to the communities of the stories that we're telling and that we're telling stories that are broad enough to represent all communities because people show up, well, most theaters are kind of like closed or limited, but people show up to the theater to watch stories. They're watching those stories either in their own community or in a community that's adjacent to them, but someone across the world or across the country might have produced that picture. And I would like to see that all of the parties that are participating and contributing to that picture are compensated well. And additionally, that the communities it's not enough, basically, to have Black folks in your movies. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. I want to see that these communities who are having their stories told are, one, having those to- stories told in a way that's justified and respectful. And two, that they get to benefit in some way economically from having their stories told. So I don't know exactly what that looks like, but basically it's to say, like, 
you know, it's not enough to commodify someone's story and be like, oh, but I told your story. It's like, okay, yeah, you walked away with all of the the material benefits of that. I want to see that communities are being reinvested into and that people have the chance to develop their own content and their own stories and that the way that the system operates is in a way that's more integrated and collaborative. And that, that may be, I don't know, I don't know if that's a new idea or a repackaged idea. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? The audience can find out more about me at JanessaRobinson.com. They can find out more about me also on social media. So on Instagram at Janessa E. Robinson. It's where I'm often hanging out is on Instagram. And then folks can also find out more about Artistry Land at www.artistryland.space. All right. Sounds good. Well, Janessa Robinson, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for really, I mean, one, sort of describing where you're at right now and embarking on this new journey in your creative career, but also really, you know, diving deep into how the sum total of your other experiences, whether it's been traveling or working in other industries and such, have brought you to where you are right now. Like, I hope that when people listen to this, they take away that you know, they can sort of have these divergent paths that can lead them towards what their goals are, because it certainly seems like you're doing that for yourself. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Maurice. Thank you. I I love your show. I love the work that you're doing, and I'm very excited to be a part of it. Big, big thanks to Janessa Robinson. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Janessa and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, Check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. On the weekend of October 8th through the 10th, join the Harvard Graduate School of Design virtually for the Black in Design 2021 conference. This year's theme, Black Matter, is a celebration of Black space and creativity from the magical to the mundane. Their speakers, performers, and panelists will bring nuance to the trope of Black excellence and acknowledge the urgent political, spatial, and ecological crises facing Black communities across the diaspora. You don't want to miss out on this weekend of learning, community, and connection. Visit them online at blackmatter.tv to learn more and to be a part of the event. Support for Revision Path also comes from Adobe Max. Adobe Max is the annual Global Creativity Conference, and it's going online this year, October 26th through the 28th. This is sure to be a creative experience like no other. Plus, it's all free. Yep, 100% free. With over 25 hours of keynotes, luminary speakers, breakout sessions, workshops, musical performances, and even a few celebrity appearances, it's going to be one-stop shopping for your inspiration, goals, and creative tune-ups. Did I mention that it's free? Explore over 300 sessions across 11 tracks, hear from amazing speakers, and learn new creative skills, all totally free and online this October. To register, head to max.adobe.com. 
Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about Revision Path as a whole? Please talk to us. Don't be a stranger. Hit us up on social media. We're on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, just search for Revision Path. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, of course. We, you know, of course, leave a five-star review. Why would you leave less than a five-star review if you've made it all the way through to the end of the episode? Especially if you've been listening for a while. Like, do us a solid. Even if you've never left a review before, just leave a review. Do it one time. We would love that. Let everyone you know know about the show because it really helps us grow and help reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.